So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests, and, when people send them in, I'll answer listener questions. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive perks like... Every once in a while, I just show up at their homes and I've got a chocolate cake and I want to share it with them. And if you're not one already, you can check out all the other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. You know what? I'm leaving that in. Meanwhile, I've got an interview guest today. Who are they, Oliver? Let me tell you. They are Alistair Stewart, co-owner of Escape Artists Incorporated, a podcast network. They do various shows where you get to hear short stories read to you by talented voice actors in a variety of genres. Podcastle gets you fantasy, Pseudopod gets you horror, Escape Pod gets you science fiction. You get the idea. There's a whole bunch of shows. You should all go check them out. But first... Why not listen to this interview with Alistair, who, on top of being a podcasting kingpin, is an author and accomplished voice actor himself. He's also just an all-around really pleasant guy with whom I got to talk about, among other things, the most terrifying televised event I've ever heard of, how he balances his own writing with many other endeavors, and how we're at the top of what he calls the quantum age of fiction. And here we are with Alistair. Hello. Hi, how you doing? Well, and thank you so much for making time in your ridiculously busy schedule. Though, <laughs> uh, before we got talking, Alistair was telling me about other people he knows who make him sound lazy and make me feel like, I don't know what. <laughs> you have busy people know busy people, I guess. Absolutely. It's kind of one of the functions of what we do. Everyone, uh, everyone who works in this field, especially who works in genre, because genre now has such a very strong kind of DIY punk aesthetic to it. We all do 15 different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm in the middle of rebuilding my website at the moment, which in a roundabout way is saying I've saved up enough money to pay a very, very good web guy to make my website look pretty. <laughs> and one of the things which I realized has to go on there now is the voice acting reel, because I've done enough of it. Yeah. And it's only it's only taken me about eight years to, to go from, oh, this is just a thing I do because it's, it's a laugh, to that's the fifth show where I'm one of the leads. Okay, I should probably <laughs> steer into that. <laughs> Well, um, why don't we sort of do a broad picture to begin with, because uh, I'm actually going to, funny enough, quote another interview uh, by Sandra O'Dell, where you said, the first podcast I ever remember listening to all the way through was the first episode of Escape Pod. Mm -hmm. It took 25 minutes to download onto my pea green iMac from a dial-up line that I had to plug into the phone socket, which gives us a a time frame. Oh, it does. How did you go from there to being the co-owner of the company responsible for that and other podcasts. You know, did you make a vow that very same day? Was it like some Daniel Day-Lewis and there will be blood? You know, what's this? Why don't I co-own this? It shall you know? be mine. Or, um, <laughs> how, what, was, what was the broad strokes that got you there? Persistence, basically. Persistence and being having one of those rare moments where I was as un-British as I could possibly be. Because <laughs> for 
for like, I think it must have been the first year because Pseudopod kicked off a year into Escape. For the first year, I would painstakingly download each one of these episodes and listen to them on like the little green, quick, little gray QuickTime bar <laughs> that would slowly march upwards as, as as it finished downloading. And I loved it. And after a while, uh, Pseudopod launched the horror show. And uh, this time I was becoming friends with Mo Lafferty, who's, who was one of the co-editors on that show when, when it first kicked off. And I remember listening to an episode and, and Mo saying that she needed to step away to, to kind of do other stuff. And I I blacked out for a moment. And when I returned to consciousness, I sent an email to Sarah Ely saying, I'm aware I have absolutely no experience whatsoever, but this show is great. And I think I'd like to be one of your editors. Uh-huh. And to the my rank astonishment to this day, Sarah's response was, oh, yeah, we were going to come talk to you. Oh, what, uh, what was uh, their reasoning for that? I had been very slightly visible at this point. My my writing career is very strange because it's moved through about five phases. And at that point, I was moving out of a phase of comics journalism. I came up through the late 90s, early noughties comics journalism pseudo-boom that hit. And the chances are no one remembers it because it was really long time ago and also it was a pseudo boom it was very small but at one point i was writing for three of the major sites involved uh you can still see this stuff uh it's all in the Wayback machine ninth art which was launched by a trio of uk comic writers one of whom anthony johnston is a, a good friend of mine and who went on to do things like write resident evil village nice. um is still all up on Wayback Machine, and you can see my first ever headshot where I have hair. It is kind of amazing. That's how long ago it was. But I'd, I'd done a lot of work in that field, and I was starting to move across into writing about podcasting a tiny little bit. So I'd obviously registered a little bit on people's radar. And the field at this point was so tiny that if you said stuff which was moderately coherent in sentences, you would get noticed. I mean, to give you an example, a friend of mine, Matt Wallace, who is another kind of first generation podcaster turned author, he came up through a period where you could review Bomb Amazon, where if you got if you got 50 friends to review your podcast or your book when it came out, that would plant it maybe top 20 in the charts, which would get that was back in the day, wasn't it? Now you need a whole town to help you. (laughs) Right. You know, and they're probably too busy mining crypto. Um, <laughs> but as a result, I registered as a presence a little bit. And because I registered as a presence and because I'm as overly wordy in prose as I am in speech, uh, they went, yeah, let's have a chat. So what happened was Ben Phillips stepped across to full-time editor and I became full-time host because Ben basically went, I don't really like talking to people. Can I just do the, the prose stuff? Can I just do the text? And I was like, yeah, I will talk to people. I could do that. And I did. Um, my first episode is number 49. I heartily recommend you go back and listen to it because no word of a lie, my voice is one octave higher and I sound like the, the kid on The Simpsons who drops his watch into the deep fat fryer at the restaurant. <laughs> hey, everyone! Ow! 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 Welcome to the show! You know, that kind of thing. I'll have to link to that in the show notes uh, to make it easier. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. Um, and uh, now there is a second part to that quote, which I also thought was interesting, uh, where you say that the second podcast I can remember listening to was episode one of Pseudopod. Mm -hmm. And that was the point I realized I was, despite my epic spaceship love, probably a horror guy. I thought that was interesting. Do you mind expanding on what it was that made you have this realization? What qualities of horror sparked more joy for you than, say, space opera? And what was it about? I mean, obviously, it wasn't the first time you encountered horror. So what was it about hearing it in um, audio form, perhaps, that, you know? I... I've always had an interesting relationship with sleep. Um, it's evolved a lot over time. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was diagnosed with sleep apnea, which um, 
And that I won't say that diagnosis saved my life. I will say it changed it because it had mm -hmm. got quite bad across the course of the first couple of years of the pandemic to the point where I was getting maybe four hours good sleep a night Oof. and a couple of hours of really, really shitty sleep a night. So I, I would I would have to nap during the day. Like two or two, three o'clock, I would just start to wind down. Movies became a problem, and I love movies because if I'm in, in if I'm in a dark room for two hours and there's it's a film that's happening at night, I am going sleepy time. That's just how this works <laughs> at that point in my life. So I got diagnosed with sleep apnea. I got a CPAP machine, and that has been incredibly helpful. But even before all of that, even when I was an adolescent, I would always kind of view the hours between about eleven and one as mine. That would be where I wouldn't have to interact with people. That would be where I could do what I wanted to do. And a lot of the time, what I wanted to do was sit in bed and listen to the radio. Mm. Now, at this time, I listened to a lot of BBC Radio 4 and uh, also Radio 1. Radio 1 at this point had a two-hour show between 10 and midnight presented by Mark Radcliffe and Mark Riley, which did all kinds of incredibly strange comedy skits and stuff like poem of the week, cult film of the week, this kind of thing. So my cultural education was coming up through this. and. Over on Radio 4, they ran regular repeats in a new series of a thing called Fear on 4. And Fear mm. on 4 is basically Tales from the Crypt, but as a radio program. Oh, nice. And it has this kind of metafictional element to it, where a lot of the time the host, the man in black, who has been played by four people, I think, at this point, comes up from the depths of Broadcasting House, and you hear these sonorous footsteps, and then, good evening. And he will explain this horrible, horrible story to you. And these things are nasty. So I am 16, 17. Uh, I have trauma going on in my life anyway, and I'm listening to these these stories, one of whom is, is just written on my soul. There's one about a recent divorcee who travels to Spain to basically recuperate and becomes really interested in a tower on the edge of the town where she's staying, where the rumor is that if you don't count the correct number of steps on the way up, you will never leave the tower. <laughs> and the last moment in the story is her sobbing, counting 10,001, 10,002, 10,003, as she's just going back down this tower forever. So this is a really formative early experience for me. Then there was also the fact that 1990s BBC TV was profoundly messed up in a very sporadic and interesting way. It would be tremendously well-behaved and tedious a lot of the time. And then every now and again, it would just go, ha, and tweak your nose. The, the least famous example of these is there was a stage magician who was the face of stage magic in the UK for most of my childhood called Paul Daniels. If you ask professional magicians, Daniels was a curse. He basically killed the industry and the art form in this country above the local level for a lifetime. If you ask the BBC, he was a ratings winner. He just kept getting Christmas specials and shows. One year, he got a Halloween special. And the big illusion at the end of it was he was strapped into an Iron Maiden, had a set period of time to kind of escape. Otherwise, the door, which was covered in spikes, would slam shut. This is primetime BBC TV. This is, I want to say, like 8.30 at night, just before the 9 o'clock news. So, the counter runs down, gets to one second, he's still in there. What, I think one wrist breaks free, the counter stops, the thing slams shut. Uh. There is 10 seconds of dead air, which lasts about a thousand years. <sighs> then they roll the credits in silence. <laughs> And nothing is said about this through the news and for about an hour after it. Now, as I understand it, at this point, the BBC switchboard is melting down yeah. <laughs> as disgusted of Twickenham is ringing up to demand to know if they really did just see a man die in one of the stupidest and most horrible ways possible live on BBC television. Of course, they didn't. But inside about three years of that, 
one of the platonic ideals of television horror fiction was quietly unleashed. It's a show called Ghostwatch, and it was a iron fist inside a velvet glove. It was presented, mm-hmm. ironically, exactly like a, like really good close-up magic, because it was presented very much as this is a story. There is literally a written by credit as one of the first things you see, but no one pays any attention to it. And Ghostwatch is a traditional mid-90s live BBC outside broadcast presented by the three or four people who always did these um, at a house which has reported a series of hauntings. And you get Vox Pops from the audience because everyone's shown up to see this. And I think it's Craig Charles from Red Dwarf is one of them. So he's on there. Oh, nice. Uh, children's TV presenter Sarah Green is interviewing the residents of the house. And Michael Parkinson, who was basically the king of television in the UK at that point, is in the studio talking mm-hmm. to various people. And it's dull. Nothing happens for about 20 minutes. And then they go to the studio to phone to phone lines because, of course, people are calling in. And someone calls in and asks who the man standing in the little girl's bedroom is. And they run the video back from one of the cameras they've set up, and there's a guy in a boiler suit standing behind a curtain. Love it. And 90 minutes later, one of the presenters is possibly in hell. Another one is pretty definitively dead. And Michael Parkinson is walking towards the last camera in a burning studio, reciting round and round the garden like a teddy bear in a demonically low voice. I hear both of these, all three of these things, quite early. So that kind of upending of expectation in horror, coupled with the fact I was actually trained in stage magic at the time, meant that that type of story also always had a very kind of visceral impact on me, and I've always really enjoyed it. So when we got to the first couple of episodes of Pseudopod, and the first one is, I think, a Scott Sigler story called Bagman, mm. which does exactly that kind of thing, in that it's a thing which you think is one type of story and actually isn't. That was when I realized I actually liked this field a lot more than I thought I did. God, that, I'm, I'm not to fixate, but that- Daniel's magic trick thing is madness. I can't imagine that ever being shown on television anywhere on planet Earth at any point. (laughs) I mean, obviously it happened, but just, you know. And that was it. That was was the the punchline. And then what? He showed up uh, the next day, uh, got coffee, somebody took a photo kind of thing. Like, what was the reveal that he's fine? I want to say the reveal was an hour later. Um, They just cut back to the studio and he was sitting on the edge of the thing, completely unharmed, drinking a cup of tea or something like that. And, and just go to it. You're welcome. Enjoy the trauma. You know. <laughs> yeah. So sorry, you told that very well, and I can only imagine actually having seen it. Christ. Um. Okay. So so that's so that so yeah. Sounds like that will lay the foundation so that when you yeah you, you listen to the pseudopod story, boom, there you were. Exactly. Christ. <laughs> Uh, Christ, great answer, mate. Um, right, so <laughs> coming back to the sort of the theme of you being busy, busy, busy. Time and energy spent podcasting, of course, means time and energy that doesn't go towards your own writing. Something I myself have struggled with at times, mm-hmm. even though I have this whole gimmick going on with my podcast. Well, gimmick, it's it's what it is. Where I'm reporting when I'm not doing interviews, I'm reporting in on and describing the craft of me writing the novel in progress. Right, so it does have kind of a virtuous cycle of driving me to write more because I got to you know I got to report back to the audience. That's a smart setup. I like that. Oh, thank you. But of course, nonetheless, there have been times where I've been editing uh, an episode or whatever and gone, God, I could be working on a chapter. Or I've been working on a chapter and thinking, oh, shit, I've got to chase that guest. <laughs> and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm very interested from, on a very personally interested level as well, as uh, I think listeners may enjoy hearing. How do you feel your endeavors with escape artists at large have benefited your writing, justifying that time and energy? And if you like, you kind of glue on the side here. How does your pop culture newsletter, The Full Lid, benefit either the writing, the podcasting, or both? Let's, that's a great question. Let's start with The Full Lid. That was me, win- that was me both winning and losing a bet 
all at once. That... Because uh, there was a, a point where a lot of newsletters were starting to hit in quite quick succession. And I was between projects. And my brain did that thing it sometimes does, where it went, hey, do this. And I tweeted something about I could never run a, a weekly newsletter because all it would be would be me yelling about narrative structure. And then 50 plus replies, all of which were, when's the first issue out? I was like, fine, fine. <laughs> God damn it. The Folded is incredibly useful to my process in a couple of different ways. It gives structure to the week because it's weekly and because I have to lay out what I'm doing on each day. And it's also a means of venting the enthusiasm. I really deeply, profoundly love narrative in all its forms. It has been the thing I've escaped into when I've needed to. It's been the toolkit I've used to rebuild my life when I've needed to do that. It's been a comfort. It's been the territory I make my way across. And it's what I'm trained to understand. I have a master's in contemporary English literature, a BA in very similar stuff as well. I've got 15 years of freelance journalism. And so the thing which I realized a couple of years ago is that this stuff is quite easy to me. And it's very easy for me to devalue that because it's easy for me. And the truth is, this is my superpower. Everyone has one. Mine is that I can look at a terrible film and go, yeah, well, I mean, that part's quite interesting and actually does something really cool if you kind of turn it on its side. And instead of that being me waking my partner up at 1 a.m. going, honey, honey, I had an idea. I want to talk to you about it, which hasn't quite happened, but we did get quite close. I dropped 2,000 words into a newsletter every week. It's also become. If I can interrupt for two seconds, it is useful for keeping your partner a sanity. It really uh, is. Mine was like, you know, I love hearing about your novel, but I like that you know, with this podcast, I hear less about it. <laughs> we 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 have a we have a running gag along very similar lines. Where any time a trailer hits for something, if it's something that she'll like, and she's very discerning, she'll be like, "Yeah, we need to see that." And if it's something I'll like, and I am not the least bit discerning, you know, I will I will hug all these misshapen puppies to me without a second's hesitation. She'll go, "I'm going to give you a five pound note and a chocolate bar. You that one's all." you and i'm like i cannot wait fantastic. <laughs> um so yeah the full is really useful for structure to a lesser extent so a pseudopod the interesting thing with that is that it's become a much i think it's become a much stronger show now we have multiple hosts because the whole issue with escape artists has always been provide, trying to provide people well twofold firstly it's always the company motto is one story told well and it's also always been something where we've tried to give people the opportunity to gain skills in various parts of the field. And the host, the hosting team on Pseudopod ah, blow me away every week. You know, I think I'm on two or three episodes a month now, and the folks who come in to do the other spots never fail to amaze me. So that's another kind of useful structural element. The most important benefit doing both of those things regularly has had for my writing is basically keeping the muscle working. The, the worst thing you can do is start cold. And the fact that I need to write something every week means that I'm never quite starting cold. Now, the interesting flip side to all of that, and this is a conversation I, I have with a very good friend of mine quite regularly. The nature of all of this and the nature of my day job is such that an awful lot of my creative and my creative brain is taken up every single week. So I'm not writing the amount of fiction I would like to write. I'm also not in a position where I need to write a tremendous amount of fiction at the moment. Hmm. But I'm getting to the I'm getting to the point in the year 
where I'm starting to get a little bit of free time. I'm starting to find myself wondering whether it's worth cycling back around to that. To provide you with some context, I have a novella which is under contract, which is in process. Um, and I also have a novel, which like everyone's novel, has gone through five iterations. At one point, an agent wanted to see it, and then they decided to not be an agent anymore. They didn't see the novel before that. That wasn't my fault. I have <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't like they read the manuscript and went, I'm out. <laughs> no, literature is dead. Thank you. Goodbye. You know, all of that stuff. But I'm starting to get to the point in the year where I've maybe got some capacity again. And what I'm trying to balance is whether or not I want to use that capacity to, you know, sit around and eat toast and play The Last of Us Part 2, or whether I want to try and close out another couple of things. And it's probably going to be the second one. <laughs> when you say uh, you're not sure if you need to write fiction as much anymore, do you mean, is it is that reference to personal drive, uh, chasing income and clout? What's the, what, what needs specifically? It's, it's, it's kind of two or three things at once. Having a regular job is great, and I didn't for 15 years. Uh, I, I did all kinds of stuff. There was a, a meme doing the rounds a couple of days ago, which was, had kind of, what jobs as a writer have you done? And I started uh -huh. off with Bouncer. Uh, I was a receptionist. I was a game store manager for a long time. I've been a cleaner, uh, all kinds of stuff. The best job I'd never got, and this is 30 freaking years ago, and the job description is still carved into myself. I sat down, this was immediately after I left university, and I sat down at the job center, and I said, I, this, is my, this is my qualifications, what could you do for me? And of course, I had an English degree, so they said, well, we can give you physical labor. <laughs> and I was like, cool, thanks. And I went up for like a dozen things, didn't get any of them, and I remember going in one day, sitting down across from this, this, this dude, and he went, we've got something, brilliant, what is it? To the sweet factory. I lived in York at the time, and the Roundtree's factory on the edge of York is a massive, massive employer. And I said, cool, what am I doing? Well, you know boiled sweets? Yeah. You know what happens to them before they're boiled? They're basically like sugary magma. Yeah. Yeah, you'd be cutting them into boiled sweets. Oh, that sounds amazing. And as the tone of the interview went on, the guy was just giving me more and more eye contact. And he was like, you get a 15-minute break. All right. It's a 12-hour shift. Yeah, I could do that. They're not giving you gloves. I could make that work. And the, like every single answer he was giving me was like, don't take the job. Don't take the job. You know, he was like two, two beats off. They will remove your kidney in return for your first paycheck. Yeah, as I say, they'll be firing a gun beside both of your ears every 12 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Random Not Punch Friday. <laughs> Surprise. It's always you. You know, that kind of thing. So having stability is really useful because firstly, I don't need to do stuff like that. And secondly, it ironically gives me time to do the other stuff. The other reason why I've not felt a tremendous drive to do it for a little while is, and this is where we're probably going to get a little bit depressing, the industry is fundamentally broken. Hmm. And it's fundamentally broken basically across every axis you would care to look at. Uh, as we're recording this, the DOJ, uh, I believe HarperCollins Monopoly trial, is yes. is serving just this never-ending fountain of effluvia about how publishing actually views itself. And that's just one of them. I mean, 1% of every assistant editor in the field quit. A few months ago. Basically, no publisher is paying a living wage. Advances are a terrible joke told to a, a lunatic god by an idiot in a thunderstorm. You know, nothing about it works right now. Yeah. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. That absolutely doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And I know so many people who are, prof who are professional authors who are doing amazing work in the very definition of extreme situations. I mean, that's even before we get to the fact we're two and a half to three years into a global pandemic. Everything is not great right now this is the point where 
my cheerleader brain goes in, we need art now more than ever. And my, my cheerleader brain is absolutely correct. But the other thing we need to do is to be able to pay our bills and eat. Mm -hmm. And the thing which I found more and more across the course of the last couple of years is focusing on my own stuff, focusing on projects on the DIY level. And I don't mean that pejoratively stuff, which you build yourself it is nourishing. It helps. It helps creatively. Uh, it also helps give you that catharsis. And I, I'm basically every creative I know desperately needs a win every couple of weeks. And whether that's finishing a chapter or finishing a book or selling something or recording something, you have to keep doing it. And if you have control of what you're doing, you have control of that. It's very hard. It's differently hard, but the time frames are vastly compressed. I mean, to give you an example, I have a friend who has had a book out on submission for twenty months, mm. and he's probably not going to list, not going to hear back for about another ten. Now he's written three others in the meantime, and that's great. They're all going to go out on submission. But the simple truth is, he, if that was the sole thing he was doing that would not be a means that he with which he could support himself mm -hmm. so you have to find ways to balance the work and balance your own personal health and well-being and the thing which i found is doing the work i want to do not the work which it feels like i need to do and this is an incredibly long-winded answer which i feel is starting to jump the rail so i'll try and wrestle it back on <laughs> put it back on point i'm really proud of the novel i wrote i'm actually really proud of both of them we'll probably talk about the first one in a little bit and i'm really proud of the non-fiction books i've published but I feel like I can make more progress both in my own emotional and psychological health and in becoming a better writer by at the moment parking those things and not launching them into the process I know will take a very long time, but instead focusing on things I can do now that will help me and help others. You know, I think that makes a lot of sense, and I'm not at all pushing back. I'm just saying it's interesting to hear that from you because in my brain, if I think, oh, well, the process is going to be a thousand years, better start yesterday. Yeah. So I like, I like hearing what you're saying about, you know, well, I could start yesterday, but, <laughs> you know, that'll take time and energy to go to the other things. Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. And I, huh. your, your approach is, is absolutely valid. You know, like I say, I, I know a lot of people who have a lot of stuff in the water now, and what they're banking on is one or all of them are going to return in a couple of years. And that's incredibly smart. The issue I have is I suck like you would not believe at active waiting. I, as an impatient person, I can I can have some idea. <laughs> I, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll give you an example, uh, and I will carefully file the serial numbers off. I was approached uh, at the top of the year about a long form serial project, and basically they said we want we want you to do this because we think you'd be great at it. We know your proclivities. We know what you like to write about. We're going to need a series bible, and we're going to need a breakdown on what you would want, and it's it's got to be quite fast. So I dropped everything for two weeks, put together something I was really proud of. Uh, we sent it in. As we're talking, it is the 3rd of September. One week ago, driving up to York to visit my folks, I got an email from the company involved saying, we're so sorry. It's been eight months. We are very aware this has taken much longer than it needed to be. We've had all kinds of other stuff on. Here's the reasons we can't go ahead with it. Here's what we can offer you instead. Now, I'm still unpacking how I feel about all of this. For, and the thing, which is the other thing I'm, I'm unpacking is I'm really not terribly ragey, which is really nice because a few years ago, I would have been very kind of about this. It's incredibly frustrating. That's a given. But it's been so long that I had literally forgotten it was out in the wind. <laughs> the first couple of months waiting for it, I couldn't get it out of my mind. 
And I know that slowed down everything else. And these last two weeks, ironically, just before I got the no, the thing I found myself doing was I kept coming across research that would be really useful for this project. And the first couple of times it happened, I went, ah, it's, it's, I mean, I'm still waiting on it. And they're going to say no anyway. And the third or fourth time it happened, I just went, nope, nah, -uh, mm, I'm doing this. This is going to be great. And it's things, it's, it's stupid little things. There's a, a magazine that does kind of Fortean and, um, Neolithic archaeology about articles about that in the UK. Subscription for it's 10 pounds for a year. And this was going to be really helpful for this project. First couple of times I found this, I was like, no, I'll wait until I've got the green light. And then three <laughs> days before I got the red light, I went, no, it's a tenner. This will be great. I'll subscribe to it. <laughs> so it, the thing which I've learned from that is finding yeah. joy. Find, you try and find joy in the element of the process that you can. And when you do suck at active waiting, and I'm guessing a lot of creatives do, work around that, even if you have to get busy with something else. Well, actually, that kind of leads to the follow-up, because I was going to ask, how do you manage your time so nothing feels starved of attention while deadlines still get made? And it feels like you're touching upon that a bit. Uh, when I figure that out, I will let you know. Yeah, fair. Uh, <laughs> fair, fair. No, it's um, the, the thing which I do. Uh, and which I've, I've got really good at. I have eight whiteboards on the wall in, in our shared office. And one of them is objectives for the month. One of them is objectives for the year. Six of them are the full lid. Um, <laughs> like one of, no, there's, there's, there's a couple which aren't, but there are four which, which are for the full lid. One is nonfiction. One is reviews. One is interstitials and, uh, playouts. One is the plan for the month. One is the plan for the individual episodes, individual issue of the week. And that, and the fact that Marguerite edits it now and the fact that we've shifted to a two-story instead of three-story format means that it becomes something which can be done in bite-sized chunks across the course of a week, a lot of the time. I mean, just before we, we recorded, I mentioned that there was an interview which I was transcribing for the last issue, which took or had transcribed and was editing down, rather, for the last issue, which was taking a while. And that was because it had come in late in the week through my fault, not anybody else's. So it was... I, it felt like a little bit of time pressure. But the last few weeks in particular, as we're writing, a lot of the time, the full lid that goes live on Friday is done by Wednesday night. Mm. And that feels like a bath. That feels like ste <laughs> stepping into a cool, relaxing bath, just knowing that, that that's off your brain. So I, I think really the, the thing which I've, I've found works really, really well when you're working on multiple projects a lot of the time is compartmentalization. Do one thing a day and learn to accept the catharsis in that. I mean, the first thing that gets built with the full lid is the structure. I do the intro, the outro, and the interstitials. And it's like dropping the keel for a ship and slotting everything else into that feels much easier. So if you can work out a process for that, it's going to make everything else feel easier and you'll have more fun doing it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. You know, whether I just have the evening that day or if I can spend the full day on uh, writing and projects and so on, I do try very hard to just make it the one thing or at most split it, you know, if it's a full day, split it in half, you know, yeah. one project in the morning, one project in the afternoon, because otherwise it starts to fall into something that I think is the bane of all, uh, all our lives, anxiety, fear-driven decision-making. And in this case, the decision to hop between six things over the course of the day, because that way you're just kind of bopping each one on the head and going, okay, well, I'm a little less anxious about you now because I wrote two sentences. Okay, I'm a little less anxious about you because yep. I sent one email, but ultimately you're achieving very little on anything, right? So yeah, yeah you just have to commit, I think, day to day. And, and the kind of the level to, to kind of put in in association with that as well and this is something which i think we're all incredibly bad at is you got to be nice to yourself mm. because especially now no one else is going to be there will be coping mechanisms you'll need which in the short term will be helpful and in the midterm won't be i'll give you an example i have a friend who works in comics and prose and uh they wrote 
I believe, 15 episodes of the comic which they write during the period where they also had a novel to do because it wasn't the novel. Now, I've read the comic and it's really good, but by their own admission, they would say that you know the the procrastination like like you say that bopping this project on the head so you don't have to think about that one isn't something which caused which helped in the short term no i can't imagine all right let's pivot uh wildly away from writing for just a moment okay because uh there's this podcasting thing and this you know again you're very familiar but i'm sitting the stage there is a disgusting amount of advice regarding how to build an audience for a podcast mm-hmm. much of it contradictory ill-informed or just obnoxiously prescriptive i think a lot of people myself included would love to hear what you have to say on the matter what do you tell us the magic formula no what do you <laughs> what do you feel uh, what do you feel are best practices however the magic formula comes from the same place we get our ideas uh- i knew it <laughs> <laughs> um it's really dull and it's really simple and it's three things i found the first is persistence um, a ridiculous amount of podcasts die after 10 episodes get past the 10 the algorithms notice you you get a little bit more discoverable also far more importantly i would argue it stops being a weird thing you're not sure how to do persistence is one learn how to learn would be the other one i mean we're tremendously lucky escape artists because sarah put together a really solid essentially bulletproof format instantly and we've we've played with that across the last 16 years but everything is still basically hello welcome to the show here's a story or multiple stories or a really long story thank you for joining us please donate find a format that works for you find a format that you can iterate and that you can automate and this is the really difficult one be honest community engagement how can i put this Terrible community engagement is really, really easy to do once. Yeah. And you will forever have be known as someone who does terrible community engagement if you do that. Persistent community engagement, honest community engagement is incredibly unsexy and will not get you massive viewer spikes, but it will get you people who will stay with you as long as you record. And I think the best examples I can give you. In 2013, shortly before we took over the company, I had a conversation with our then publisher, who was also our accountant, which was literally this. So I've just done some very basic math, and it looks like we run out of money in eight weeks. Is that right? And the response I got was, actually, it's nearest six. (laughs) I panicked, like anyone would. And between the pair of us, we put together essentially a telethon we got and at at this point we were very scattered we were four teams flying in very loose form three teams actually at that point flying in very loose formation and we got everyone on the same call we explained the situation everyone put material together we put out a 45 minute long donation call and we actually got some flack for that from some quite big names in the field because it was too long and there were literally Mm -hmm. folks going just say you want money don't do this Freaking song and dance routine. And I held a grudge about that for a very long time because we were dying and people were grading us on our death spasms was how it felt. Yeah. <laughs> and I've I've moved past that. It took me a long time, but I did move past that. And the community rallied around and we got enough money that basically gave us a solid foundation for about five, six years after that and raised our visibility. And we got that because we were honest. Mm. If we pod faded, if we just gone, well, everything's fine, but we can need, but we do kind of need a hand. It would have been 
a quarter of what we got. Skip ahead about a decade, and we did a thing for a very for about five years called Artemis Rising, which was a, a spot designed to spotlight marginalized authors. We were aiming it very specifically, tailoring it very specifically towards particular elements of the LGBTQIA plus spectrum. If it sounds like I'm being vague, I am. I don't have those notes in front of me, and the absolute last thing I want to do is say that we were tailoring it towards folks that we weren't, because that is exactly what we got in trouble for. Huh. We uh, ran it for five years, and it speaks to one of the things we were discussing earlier, where the idea was to give folks an opportunity to get experience in parts of the field they hadn't previously got experience in. And we had a bunch of folks who were new newcomers to the editorial side of things. And they made a couple of mistakes. And I'm not saying that to dunk on them. I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm absolutely not saying that to throw them under the bus. They were brand new. They were learning as they went. And in this, across the space of a weekend, we realized that some of the language that we were using on this was wrong. And we realized this because the community told us. Mm -hmm. We have worked very hard across the 16 years EA has been around to date to be inclusive and welcoming and to foster good, good communications with every element of that particular spectrum. So when folks who we know, folks who we like and respect, who we consider friends, folks who've run stories with us, folks who've helped us out, find, are going, you screwed this up. You have, two op you have two options. The first is you entrench and you get defensive. And the moment you do that, you're done. The second is you listen. That was really hard. And we listened. And we made notes on what needed to be done. And we apologized. And we changed it. And in the space of five days, what was in danger of becoming a bit of a Twitter conflagration went from, we're really unhappy you've done this, to, thanks. We're still really unhappy because you shouldn't have done this. But we understand why. And thank you for addressing it. Mm -hmm. And... I'm always really cautious talking about situations like that. And we've had a couple, but I'm really cautious about it because the last thing I want to do is shove a pot in my head and wander around banging it, yelling, this is why we're great. This is why we're great. It's not. <laughs> I also don't want to apportion blame to anybody. Everyone in this field, everyone I've worked with is always trying their best. And sometimes your best isn't what's needed. But if you don't learn, if you don't listen, if you don't look at a mistake and go, that was a mistake, let's fix it you become the worst version of yourself. And that's something we try really hard not to do. Fair enough. Um, yeah, that's interesting, because it actually touches upon something uh, I was going to get into later. But you know what, why don't we expand upon what you've said a little bit, if there is anything to expand on. Uh, I did notice that one of the values uh, publicly posted on Escape Our site that I really dig and would like to discuss with you is the stated commitment to widening the circle. Yeah. Essentially, if I follow correctly, uh, pushing to help diversify the genre writing and reading scene. Mm -hmm. What is your current approach to that? Uh, you know, given how anonymous we can all be online, I started wondering, you know, do you ask authors of stories you accept to self-identify by filling out a short survey? You know, and, and this, this, is, this is delicate stuff, right? It really um, is. And you can't just tell by looking at people's names or even their photos, you know, if, if someone is, say, uh, queer or whatever. But maybe you're looking to bring in more queer writers. So how do you, you know? This is something which every editorial team approaches differently. And it's something which every genre has different demands upon. I mean, like I, like we said earlier, I'm a horror guy. Horror mm -hmm. is a field which is permanently trapped in a graveyard of old dead white men, many of whom were colossally racist, at least one of whom was Providence, Rhode Island's number one Celine Dion impersonator. Hi, Howard. <laughs> Thanks for nothing. 
the way that you engage with this, and this will sound a little bit like a, a nonsense truism, the way you engage with it is you keep engaging with it. Your point about do, do we offer a, a short survey? We have had so many editorial discussions about that. We have folks who are absolutely in favor of it, and we have folks who are absolutely against it, and rightly view it from their point of view as an invasion of privacy. And this is the eternal process of tuning that as an editor or as a publisher, you have to do. Because if you don't, you'll just end up publishing old white men. You just will. And that, mean, that means that it's very much an ongoing process with us. I know each show experiments with specific calls. I know each show, and this is one of the horrors of this field, everyone has to wear multiple hats. So most of our editors are also authors, and a lot of them are in these communities, so they know people who are also in these communities. So having them in an editorial position does an awful lot to make you you feel like a safe place to submit to. And it's horrifying that it's in one very specific way, in that we all have to do multiple things. It's brilliant because it means that if you are someone who is looking for a field like that, if you are a market, you have if you're a market who has folks who are diverse on the editorial stuff, that's a big plus. If you're a market that says out loud that you want and welcome diverse and inclusive stories, that's absolutely the minimum you can and should do. And the thing that you have to be mindful of with all of this is it's not enough because nothing is. Mm. This is, how can I put this? Tomorrow, as we record this, the Hugos are going to be announced. The full lid is a finalist for best fanzine. This means that you have to record, you have to write or record an acceptance speech. If you're me, that means you actually have to write six versions of the acceptance speech, constantly tuning the various levels of stress and mild depression and grumpiness until you find something that works. And there was a line which I used in an abandoned draft about how we're at the top of the quantum age of genre fiction, because <laughs> binaries no longer matter anywhere and i find my i'm kind of digging back into that concept a lot in my subconscious because i think it's something which i think there's something to it and the binary of yes this is an inclusive market yes this is a welcoming market no it isn't it's as false as every other one you have to be seen to be doing the work and crucially you have to be all right with constantly being seen to be doing the work because we operate especially if you're a cishet white dude, we operate from a position of extraordinary privilege in a field that has literally and provably been designed to be welcoming for us only. Mm -hmm. And it won't always be the case. And there's been huge strides made already towards that. But in our lifetime, our responsibility as professionals in the field is to make sure everyone is welcome in it, not just the folks who look like us. And that's an ongoing process. And that is an incredibly woolly answer, but hopefully there's like three or four useful things you can find. No, in no, 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 no. I like it because it, um, it allows something that I think we could all use a little bit more of uh, in a lot of avenues of life right now, which is it allows a bit of flexibility and allows room for learning. I think regardless of what you think is the best end state, to only be satisfied with that end state currently existing or not uh, is a great way to set yourself up for a lot of disappointment. Yeah. And it's true. A lot of very mealy-mouthed people over the years in a variety of settings in our lives have said, well, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. But you can't let perfect be the enemy of you know good, right? Because otherwise nothing gets exactly. happened. Nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing's done. And, and a lot of people who might have made an effort otherwise won't want to make an effort because they'll feel you know there's no way to progress towards a, a great final place uh, if there is even if, if, if there even is a final place there bloody isn't but you know what i'm saying like it discourages people and i think the the notion of progression is something which we need to be talking about more explicitly this isn't 
genre fiction is always looking for the moment where the Death Star blows up. Mm. And it's always, I have pu- I've had this book published, and now my career is complete, and I can lean back and retire to Cabot Cove and investigate murders, or possibly do them. Jessica Fletcher, greatest undiscovered serial killer in American history. We'll just leave that there. That level of catharsis isn't, it just isn't. It's all, it all has to be an ongoing process. You have to learn, you have to grow. And it sucks, and it's painful, but it's always better once you're done. Yeah, and in a way that kind of comes back to the, um, kind of comes back to the audience thing too, right? Because, you know, you're talking about steady accretion through being honest with uh, people and regularly putting the thing out and putting something out in a format that you, you can do that's manageable for you. You know, it's interesting, essentially, two thirds of your answer was about kind of taking care of the host yeah. or the producer or the other people making it as much as worrying about getting a big news site to mention you or whatever the hell. One of the things that I am proudest of is everyone who is involved in our show is paid. And it's too... Ah, well, actually, if I can cut you off, that gets me to another question hey! I was going to ask. So why don't, we, why, don't we, why don't we dive into that one? Okay. Uh, oh, you make me do this all out of order, you horrible man. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was going to be... See, nine was the, the one about widening the circle. Now we're going back to eight when I still haven't done six or seven. Um, anyway, who cares? Uh, <laughs> eight. Um, and this is true. I love that I love that Escape Artist's first listed company value is compensate the creative. Yeah. A gentler way of saying it than Harlan Ellison's good old, you know, pay the fucking writer. Uh, you also make 200 plus audio short stories available per year for free. Yep. Now I've noticed you do PayPal subscriptions, you know, coffee, Patreon, all of them, uh, intermediary services whose policies, user interface, etc., can change with time. It doesn't feel that long ago, although, God, maybe it's a decade at least now. I still remember hearing about people arbitrarily having their PayPal wallets frozen for long stretches, mm-hmm. playing havoc with their income. And what I may be taking too long to get to here is, to the degree you're comfortable discussing it publicly, how has Escape Artist's approach to funding changed and evolved over time? You know, you mentioned that fundraiser, actually. Uh, what used to work that maybe you had to move on from, and what are potential avenues you're considering for the future? We we had a phrase we used in a lot of internal meetings a few years ago, which was never close the, close a door between you and cash, which sounds incredibly capitalist, but it kind of is because we exist in a capitalist hellscape. And yeah, you've got to swim in the water. Yeah, you do. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why we have a Kofi, because for the longest time it was just PayPal. Um, Kofi was a really useful way of coming aboard, of course, now... Kofi, I think, is an adjunct of PayPal anyway. And there used to be a bunch of other stuff that we, which we did as well, which wasn't useful because about one person in a thousand used it. And a lot of the time they would just end up using PayPal anyway. <laughs> the fact that we're donation funded is vital because that allows us to work under a Creative Commons license. And after, six, after almost 16 years of doing this, saying the phrase Creative Commons license is an act of will, not saying a Creative Commons attribution, no commer- non-commercial, no derivatives license. We'll be back next week with... Um, <laughs> but it's not enough anymore. And this is my. This is one of the things, uh, many things my amazing partner does. We we talk a lot internally about how this is what we call the resolutely unsexy but vital infrastructure year, and we're doing a bunch of stuff that speaks directly to that. We have a new approach to accountancy. We're looking at nonprofit status hmm. because that will massively assist anyone who donates to us, and that will 
put a rocket onto the amount of donations we have. Now, again, this is a Death Star situation. It's not going to be a when we skip when we step across to nonprofit, instantly every money problem will go away. It's that it will help. It's another string to the bow. The other thing which we've been looking at and which we launched quite recently is our Void Merch store. The industry is six people wide at any given time. Void Merch is run by a very good friend of mine called Jordan Shively, who is a fantastically gifted writer, podcaster, and graphic designer. And we sell t-shirts and stationery through there. Individually, none of this is enough. With the four of them working together, it's usually just about enough. But if you want kind of the bullet points for it, diversification of of income is what you have to do. Mm -hmm. And it ties into the persistence thing where none of this stuff is a panacea none of this is going to be an instant cure for all your all your ailments but if you do enough of this for long enough all of it will help and all of it will ultimately be enough hmm, fair enough so as i say you've completely buggered my order hey. uh, but i uh, was going to close on the winding the circle because then we can go, come, go, go out on a you know that we're making the world a better place you know no uh but bugger it uh instead uh before the wrap-up question i'm going to just go to uh, number seven why not uh do you <laughs> do you have a hand in choosing who does the readings for escape artists as a voice actor yourself as well as cohen right you feel like a logical candidate for such decisions, but... Uh... Very, very occasionally. Okay. Um, for a long time, I had a thing which I don't think I told anybody about, which was once a year I would allow myself to do a thing. And and that thing would usually be, I think we should have this person narrate this. We we have incredible editors and we have incredible narrators and they're really, they know each other very well. And they're really, really good at tailoring stories to voices the two names at the absolute top of my head um are the buttery man voiced dave robertson who is a dear friend and has one of the best sets of vocal cords on earth and can make any there's an old story about tom baker uh and about how tom baker was asked about why he gets so much voiceover work and he said well my dear boy it's because i can make weasel shit sound like the old testament <laughs> and uh Dave is exactly the same. He he gives incredible gravitas to everything. Um, and there is a streamer called Autumn Ivy, who we, we started working with a couple of years ago. And she has this wonderful, laconic kind of approach. And there's a couple of stories we gave her when she first started coming onto rotation with us, which works so well precisely because of that voice. So I don't have a tremendous hand in it. I will suggest someone every now and again. Um, but that actually adds to the fun. Because it means that when I listen back to an episode, I always have a, a moment of, oh, hey, good choice, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, aside from is it is it as simple as kind of like you know great voice and fun to work with, or would you, is there is there more you know that you think uh, you're, very you're very non scientifically? We my understanding is we kind of look at three or four different approaches. Firstly, we always try and match the, story, the voice to the story, and I know there's a couple mm -hmm. of stories we've had parked for a long time because we haven't been able to find someone of the correct nationality or ethnicity or approach to fit them. And we would much rather pay for a story and sit on it for two years and find the perfect narrator than pay for some amazing story from somewhere where there is, we have very small connections to the voice acting community. And after six months, just go, oh, just give it to Chad. It'll be fine. <laughs> we, you don't do that. There are provable horror stories in the field of what happens when you do. Mm -hmm. um, professionalism always plays a part. And I'm not going to bury anybody because there's no one to bury. But if folks are good, it's it's persistence all over again. If you're good to work with, people will want to work with you. Mm -hmm. And that that absolutely plays a role. And also, the one for me, the one I really love, and it's why I keep circling back around to Dave's stories, there is an ephemeral quality that a lot of really good voice artists have when they get the joke. 
when they get the story instinctively. And the best example I can give you is I, I worked on a show called The Secret of St. Kilda last year, which was an incredibly fun experience. It's a 10-part audio drama set on a tiny island off the Scottish coast. And I had a, a just a glorious role in it. One of the other cast members is um, an Irish voice actress called Maeve de Bruyne. Maeve is a force of nature. The work that Maeve did on that show went from fragile and, because her character is seriously ill, mm -hmm. went from fragile to authoritative and caring to, you know that bit in the, the movie version of Fellowship of the Ring where Galadriel goes full disco nightmare and the screen flicks and that kind of, they will worship me in despair for I am the, yeah, yeah, holy Shit. Listening to Maeve go from I'm not feeling too well to screaming demonic Gaelic down the microphone. And it's such a vitally important moment in the story, and it's such a vitally important moment in the entire show, because if you don't land that, the show collapses. Yeah. And Maeve got it instantly. And that's one of my favorite things, when a voice actor clearly understands what they're doing and gets inside it. So for me, at least, that's also kind of a big ephemeral, very important part. No, I can see that. I mean, really acting, not just, uh, you know, being a teleprompter reader, so to speak. Oh, yeah. You know, not just passing your mouth over the words. Yeah. I, I had a moment like that in, in St. Kilda, which was slightly, <laughs> slightly awkward. Um, there's a moment in episode, I play the narrator in it. There's a moment in episode seven where a character is in hospital in a very, very serious seriously ill and uh someone said oh you, you were really good in that episode I went, yeah thanks uh oh, oh, not acting <laughs> sorry <laughs> and just i mean we could do a full hour on on kind of the way you filter emotional truth through your performances mm. and it's really difficult and it's really hard and when i was doing peter lucas on the magnus archives an awful lot of it was ended up being very personal it's really interesting the way you assemble stuff that you, that comes from you and puts it in the role. And I mean, if I'll, I'll, I'll give you a very brief aside because otherwise, like you say, I'll nerd out about this for a full hour. There's a thing, uh, and there's a show I'm doing at the moment called Rogue Maker, which is great. It is a ten episode science fiction mystery which opens with an, in, an interstellar cruise liner, based airliner, basically having something go badly wrong, and you will, everyone has to escape. And I'm playing the flight attendant Malachi Tessera, and Malachi's lovely. He, he's a marshmallow. He's a big sponge cake of a man. And I actually responded really strongly to that because I'm, I'm 6'2 and I'm 400 pounds. And people always look at me physically and see one thing. And that is not the only thing I am. And getting to play someone who was very nurturing and very calm and very kind really, really resonated with me to the point where the, the show writer actually dropped a couple of lines in about the fact that Malachi is a physically really big guy and how surprising it is that he's this very much caregiver in the group despite that. So Stuff like that's awesome, where you put a little bit of yourself in the role and the role becomes a little bit more like you. That interstitial space is something I find really interesting. And you're not wrong. I, I, I can feel myself conjuring up more questions but yeah we we uh we're getting near the end here i'm afraid uh, and i feel like we've come nowhere near covering everything uh there is uh, to do with you and your endeavors i have a little so, bit more time if you want it i would love to but i have to edit this and get it no out worries. <laughs> by a certain point. no worries at all <laughs> but I, what, what I think will have to happen is uh, whenever you have uh, some new novel or any other thing out that you'd love to talk about, hit me up. I will. Uh, and, and, and we'll have to have you back. I, I until will. Then, Thank you. Yeah. No, it's been lovely. Uh, until, until then, could you please share with us um, what, what, what is the next thing? What, is the, you know, what do you personally have coming out in the near future? 
And where's the best place you like people to find you online to learn more about what you're up to? Yeah, um, the next thing I have coming out is really interesting. It's not really going to kick off in a big way before October, and I don't think it's going to be out before the end of the year. But I do a lot of work with a company called Obverse Books. And Obverse do kind of the books of my heart. They do these 25 to 35,000 word critical deep dives into individual episodes of genre fiction TV shows. I've done two for them so far. Uh, I did Through the Valley of Shadows from season two of Discovery. And I did Day of the Doctor, the 50th anniversary Doctor Who episode. Now I mention it, now might be a really good time, given it's out next year, to, you know, to, to use a, a British phrase, to call extremely dibs on the 60th anniversary episode, because that might be really fun <laughs> to do. But Obviously, with with the pandemic and with how the way production production has shifted, it's been quite difficult putting out new material for that. And they've worked out a way to do it. And I'm quite a big part of that. I'm going to be a little bit annoying and obtuse. I'm really sorry, because I'm not quite sure it's been publicly announced yet. But I have two chapters on two recent Doctor Who stories in what's going to be essentially an anthology looking at a combined recent Doctor Who story, which I'm kicking off on next month. And I'm really excited to get back into that space because it's been a while since I've worked at that length and it's always good fun. The editorial process is also equally hilarious because um, I have two editors, one of whom is very understanding and the other of whom goes, you're having too much fun, stop it. And between the pair of them, it turns into a really good book. <laughs> so that is the next kind of big project. Where people can find me really breaks down into three locations. If you check out escapeartists.net, that is the homepage for the Escape Artists Podcast Network. All five of our shows are linked through that. Each one has individual pages. You can listen to episodes through there. You can listen to episodes through your podcatcher. You can donate through there as well. Please do, if you can, please enjoy the episodes. We have a lot of fun making them. Uh, my own website is in the process of being rebuilt at the moment. That will have links to all the shows I'm in and all the places you can find my writing. In the meantime, the two best places you can find me are the current version of my, new, of my website, which is alistairstewart.com. And that has a subscription link to The Full Lid, which is my pop culture newsletter that Marguerite edits. That goes live every Friday at 5 p.m. The idea is incredibly simple. We just want you to have something nice in your inbox at the end of the week. You'll get two stories, about a thousand words long each. This week, as I write this, uh, one of them is going to be on an interesting aspect of Rings of Power, the Lord of the Rings TV show that just debuted. You'll also get what we call interstitials. Sometimes those are short films. Sometimes they're bits of art. Sometimes they're photos. Sometimes they're music. Uh, and also a playout song. Four times or every Friday of a month, there'll be a full lid. And that's really good fun. And I really enjoy doing that. And failing that, if you can't find me anywhere else, you can find me on Twitter at Alistair Stewart. Brilliant. All right. Well, thanks, Alistair. As I say, I feel like we could easily fill another hour and I would have a very good time. But alas, I must run. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime you want me back, say the word. That's a very, very easy thing for me to want to take you off on. Cheers. Brilliant. <laughs> have a good day. You too. So I'm Writing a Novel features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to songwritingandnovel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, Coffee and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me and Alistair, and I'll see you soon.